everyone, and welcome back to yet another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Nicole, and I am joined here again by the wonderful Journey and Rebecca. This week, Journey will be telling us all about the case of the Atlanta child murders, and then Rebecca will be following us by educating us on the topic of behavioral analysis and how it was involved in this case. We will say because of just how, you know, in-depth and I assume discussion-heavy this will be, we will have this in two separate episodes. So please, once you listen to episode part one of this, the Atlanta Child Murders, pop right on over to the behavioral analysis one. Um, if you have the time, you should make the time. I think they're both going to be great. <laughs> um, I would like to note that there is a listener's discretion advised as there are detailed descriptions of death involving children. And this is kind of, unfortunately, keeping in theme with the last few episodes we've had. Yeah, um, I was realizing, like, as I wrote that, I was like, this has been the warning for the last yeah. three episodes we've released. <laughs> yeah, um, might as well just get them all not over with, but discuss them all at once in short succession. Yeah. Um, with that, Journey, tell us all about the Atlanta child murders. Why don't you? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I will. I shall. <laughs> um, okay, so... Uh, this case was shown in the Mindhunter series on Netflix in 2019. And because of that, this case was actually reopened with the hopes of using new technology to test the evidence and hopefully get some DNA evidence as well. One, like, I think the mayor of Atlanta was, I think, growing up when all of this was happening. So oh, she, wow. like, holds it very close to her heart and she really wants to get some answers mm-hmm. because the guy they arrested still thinks he's innocent spoiler Mm -hmm. um and so yeah she's like i just want to make sure and solve some of these more murders that weren't solved with this so which is super exciting i hope they do that and to start i do want to mention that every victim was black and they ranged in ranged in age from like child to young adult so i think the youngest is nine and the oldest is 27 Mm -hmm. i think okay oh wow that's a large age range. It is, yeah. It's and so we learn a little bit more okay. about why they think that is later on. I don't Ooh, want to spoil okay. too much of this. And um, I also do want to apologize if I miss any victims or got any of the information wrong. The information I found was rather inconsistent. Mm-hmm. So, um, like I used the Mine Hunter book, and that's mm-hmm. written from the FBI's perspective. So I imagine that that there's a little bit of a lens placed on that mm-hmm. regarding the information. And then there was a couple other websites with their own bias as well. So yeah, just keep that in mind. And I apologize if I get anything wrong. So to just dive right in, the first body that was linked to the Atlanta child murders case was found on July 28th, 1979. And this was 13-year-old Alfred Evans, who went missing three days earlier and was killed by strangulation. So he was found in the woods off Nisky Lake Road. He was shirtless and barefoot. Also in these woods was another strong smell of decay that came from somewhere nearby where they found 14-year-old Edward Hope Smith. And Edward was killed by a gunshot and was either 50 or 150 feet from Alfred, depending on the source. That's quite a range, but either way, he was in the same vicinity as Alfred. Edward had disappeared four days before Alfred, so about seven days before he was found, and the deaths were very gruesome, but the police just wrote them off as drug-related. Was there a large drug issue in the area? Or they were just like, yeah, we'll label it drugs, you know? Um, I feel like, yes, like, you find two black boys murdered on the side of the road wow. in 1970, like, you just naturally assume and the white that- cops that are working the case? Yeah. yeah. Okay, I'm following. Um, That's my assumption. I don't know. (laughs) They just kind of assumed, like, we find a kid who looks like a vagrant, then it's Mm -hmm. drug related. Mm -hmm. And so a little while later, more bodies of black children started to turn up. On November 8th, the body of nine-year-old Yusuf Bell was found in an abandoned school. He had been missing since late October. And Yusuf was living in a nearby housing project to where his body was found, And his death really hit the community, like, especially hard. 
I have a quote from his neighbor, which says the whole neighborhood cried because they loved that kid. So wow, like it just everyone was devastated by this nine-year-old's death, which makes sense. And eight days later, 14-year-old Milton Harvey was found in the East Point section of Atlanta, which is just like a suburb within Atlanta. And he had been reported missing in early September. And they had both been strangled. But Milton's cause of death was marked undetermined like Alfred Evans, even though the M.E. said that he had, quote unquote, probably been strangled. I'm not sure Hmm. why it was marked undetermined if he, like... If there was some sort of evidence of strangulation, but I'm just assuming that like if he's basing it off of like a broken hyoid or a broken neck, like kids' bones are more malleable, so there wouldn't Mm. it wouldn't have broken. Mm -hmm. But there would have been like, yeah, I'm sure there was like some sort of like bruising or something that he was kind of making that deduction with or from. Yeah, like I feel like they don't just say they suspect strangulation just on a whim like whether or not the hyoid is broken like there's got to be bruising or something for them to to have an like an inkling that that's happening exactly yeah i'm just confused as to why he'd be like it's undetermined but then say fair (laughs) yeah yeah um so even though four young black boys' bodies were found in the span of a few months the atlanta police did not suspect a link between them Later on, there's a quote that just is like, so many kids, like they were just finding dead kids. So they were kind of just like, this is nothing unusual. Like, there's no reason to suspect a serial killer because like these kids have been killed by something else. Like, it's just a fact. That is such ridiculously backwards thinking. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't know what Atlanta was like in the 1980s, but it sounds not great. (laughs) <laughs> well, I know, I know Atlanta's in Georgia, and Georgia was a, they were a Bible Belt state, are they not? Which I know were, um, like, there's a whole history of, of segregation in Georgia and mm-hmm. all the Bible Belt states, and I just, I have a hunch that that has something to do with it, unfortunately. Yeah, it does, I feel like, play a part because the KKK was, um, like, one of the suspects for this, um, which oh. I talk about later on. So, just okay. there's a teaser to make it through this episode. <laughs> um, so on May on March fifth, nineteen eighty, twelve year old Angel Lanier left for school, but she never arrived. Her body was found five days later on the side of a road, bound, gagged, bound and gagged with an electrical cord. Holy shit! Me didn't find any evidence of sexual assault, but there was another pair of panties stuffed in her mouth, which were not hers. Oh, how would they know that they're not hers? Ew. Sorry, going off that. I'm assuming... Because she wasn't wearing them? Why? But I don't remember. I'm assuming size. Ah, uh, that would make sense. Okay. But I don't I don't remember why. Okay. Um, and because she, like, had hers on. Yeah. And so her cause of death was ligature strangulation. And then on March 11th, Willie Mae Mathis was watching the news with her 10-year-old son, Jeffrey, when they found the body of another victim. And she warned her son about talking to strangers, and the next day he disappeared, walked to the corner store to get bread, and his remains weren't found until a year later. Holy shit. Isn't that heartbreaking? Imagine his remains found. I'm sorry, do you know? Like, were they really close to where he disappeared? Because oh, I, I um, that's wow. I don't know. I, I think I mentioned it later, but I don't fully remember. Okay. Oh my god, that is so sad. That I wouldn't. I know it was a different time. But like I don't think I'd let my child leave. <laughs> yeah, and like, like yeah, you're stuck in the house now. Literally, a lot of these kids just disappeared, like walking to the grocery store, or like on their way home from school, or they're just riding their bike around. Like it's very, very innocent. Wow ways that they just went missing which it makes it all the more scarier yeah and so the body count now is at six kids and wow. at this time it became clear to the community that they were in danger and parents gave their children curfews like rebecca mm-hmm. was saying <laughs> and the atlanta police still did not connect the cases which caused a lot of frustration within the african-american communities in and around atlanta rightfully which, so <laughs> yes exactly On April 15th, the Committee to Stop Children's Murders was formed by Camille Bell, who is Yusuf Bell's mom, and some other parents of the victims. 
And so the goal of this committee was to push for accountability over the stalled investigations of the kids. And so this committee was eventually successful because the city increased both the size of the investigations task force and reward money for tips. Hmm. And they also convinced the community to be more aware of who their neighbors were and what is going on in their neighborhood. So kind of starting like an almost neighborhood watch. And they armed themselves with baseball bats and volunteered for the neighborhood patrol and joined the citywide search for clues. Just more eyes on the streets. And then on May 19th, Eric Middlebrook was found murdered a quarter mile from his house. And he is either 14 or 15, depending on the source. And he had gone missing the day before. He had suffered blunt force trauma to his head, as well as slight stab wounds to his chest and arms. And apparently, a few weeks prior to his disappearance, he testified against three kids in a robbery case. I don't know if that plays a role in it, because in the Mindhunter book, John Douglas talks about how he doesn't think that all of the cases are connected. And so I I wonder if this is one of the cases he doesn't think is connected, but then Mm -hmm. I'm like, why would you include it if you don't think it's connected? So I don't know. Thought it was interesting. So families of missing or deceased children were understandably very frustrated with the lack of action to solve the murders or disappearance of their children. And then on June 9th, 12-year-old Christopher Richardson disappeared on his way to a local pool, and his body wasn't found until the following January. He was found with a later victim, and his cause of death was undetermined, so most likely strangling. So there was a a second body found with him? Mm Mm-hmm. Like, some of these victims were found, like, Close together or together. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And yet there was still no connection being made. (laughs) Well, like, yeah. And because he just disappeared in June and he wasn't found until January. So, like, they didn't know, which is tough because a lot of these kids just went missing in, like, 1979, 1980. And then they were found in 1981, 1982. Right. I guess there's still quite a time period in between. Yeah. But you would think even with all of these children missing, if they're not all connected, there's different connections between the children. Like maybe it's not one big network, but maybe it's like four different little ones that are going on. But like Mm -hmm. stuff is still happening. And well, yeah, yeah. we don't we don't want our kids to go missing. So like, let's maybe stop this. Well, exactly. And if you think about how many kids on average go missing that aren't connected, it's like there's no way in this one city, mm-hmm. this many kids are all of a sudden going missing and there's some like there's nothing out of the ordinary. Like that doesn't make sense. And it was yeah. all within like a specific like geographical location too. like there was like wow. almost borders to where wow. they were going missing from. So I'm like, that's huge. I'd be curious Absolutely. what the, um, what the missing like the numbers of missing children were prior and after this Mm -hmm. time period. Yeah, exactly. So on June 22nd, um, seven or eight-year-old LaTanya Wilson was abducted from her bedroom early in the morning. Um, A witness saw one man climbing into her window and then talking to a second man in the parking lot, I think while holding her. And her body was found in October, fully skeletonized, and they weren't able to establish a cause of death. Wow. So hers stands out a little bit to me because this is the first time where... House abduction, is it not? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so very odd. Like, all of the other ones, from my understanding, were, like, street abductions. Or, like, they were on their Mm -hmm. way somewhere. They were walking, traveling somewhere. Yeah. And they were taken. Yeah, something very interesting as well that I didn't really include was that if a witness saw the kid, the missing kid, before they went missing with someone, it was with two people. Oh, always? Well, almost always? Yeah, the ones that I read were that way. Wow. Which I find very interesting. Yeah, that's... hmm. Yeah, and I don't know, like, their witness, like, statement, so there's a certain level of... I don't know the word I'm looking for, but yeah, take it with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. And so two days later, 10-year-old Aaron um, Weish, I think, his body was found under a bridge in DeKalb County. He had a broken neck, supposedly from a fall, and had died from asphyxia, and he had gone missing only the day before. Wow. 
Wow. On July 6th, nine-year-old Anthony Carter was found behind a warehouse on Wells Street. His cause of death was multiple stab wounds, and because there was no blood where he was found, the investigators knew that his body had been moved. And at this time, the public commissioner, Brown, started the Missing and Murdered Task Force, which had 50 members, but the murders still continued. And on July 31st, 10-year-old Earl Terrell was reported missing close to where Milton Harvey's body was found. And his body was found with Christopher Richardson in the following January. So Earl and Christopher were found um, together, but they had gone missing almost two months apart. That's a little suspect if they're not right. putting things together at this point. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. And the murder of 13-year-old Clifford Jones really helped to push the authorities into action because he was from Cleveland. And the murder of a tourist made national news. And he was found strangled with a ligature in an alley off of Hollywood Road on August 21st. And uh, apparently there were ransom calls made concerning Earl Terrell that indicated he had been moved across state lines to Alabama, which gave the FBI jurisdiction to get involved, even though it was later learned that the ransom calls were a hoax and the Mm. FBI had to back out of the investigation again. But it kind Mm. of like drew their attention to what was going on in Atlanta because a lot of the families um, were trying to get their attention and get their help. And then on September 14th or 16th, 11-year-old Darren Glass was reported missing. His body has actually never been found, which is devastating. And Mayor Maynard Jackson asked the White House for help and to have the FBI specifically conduct the investigation. And the FBI still didn't really have any jurisdiction, but started looking into the missing kids started looking into if the missing kids had crossed state lines or if the cases were in fact linked. And because the victims were all black, the FBI could determine if this was a violation of federal civil rights. And so if it didn't turn out that the kids were taken across state lines, they could intervene because of the um, violation of civil rights, which I find Hmm. interesting. Yeah. And then on November 1st, nine-year-old Aaron Jackson went missing and his body was found the next day and he was found strangled on a riverbank. On November 30th, 16-year-old Patrick Rogers went missing and apparently he knew several of the previous victims and his body was found on December 7th in the Chattahoochee River. And so it's at this time that Roy Hazelwood and John Douglas enter the picture, who I'm sure Rebecca probably talks a lot more about (laughs) and um apparently the atlanta police didn't want to cooperate with the fbi because they didn't want them like stealing their show what shows they weren't doing anything literally i'm like you still don't think the cases are linked (laughs) like more manpower is a good thing yeah 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 uh so roy and john's goal in going to atlanta was determined if the was to determine if the cases were linked and if there was a conspiracy behind them And so the three things that they learned from going over the case files were, number one, the Klan wasn't involved because uh, the victims were all black. The Ku Klux Klan was a suspect, which we have an episode coming out about them later this year as well. And the reason they thought that they weren't um, involved was because when they, if they were to do something of this caliber, they would make it very well known that yeah, it was them that it was doing them. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Like they the KKK was not afraid to show what they were doing to black exactly. people at the time. Yeah. So because there wasn't any like no one was coming forward and taking accountability for this, they were like KKK didn't do it. They have too big of egos to let someone else take the fall for this. And they were also pretty certain that the offender was black because they were in a predominantly black area. So a white person taking kids off the street would have been noticed. So they were Mm -hmm. like, nope, you kind of belong in this area. And many of the deaths and disappearance were linked, sorry, but not all of them were. And so they didn't think that the girls were killed by the same person especially LaTanya, because her abduction from her bedroom was way too specific. It was very different from any of the other uh, murders. 
And they also didn't think they were dealing with only one killer. Kind of like, mm -hmm. because they weren't all killed by the same person. There was going to be more than one killer, which just makes sense. And so their profile was um, that the offender would be a single black male between the ages of 25 and 29, a police buff, drive a police-type vehicle, have a police-type dog like a German Shepherd or Doberman, and would insinuate himself into the investigation. He would be sexually attracted to young boys, but was sexually inadequate because there was no evidence of sexual abuse or assault. Which is interesting because there wasn't stabbings in every single one either. Mm -hmm. And at some point, the kids would reject him and he would feel compelled to kill them because of this rejection or perceived rejection. Was this the profile developed by Douglas? Yes. That's what he wrote okay. in his book, almost verbatim. Okay, okay, because I have to be completely honest, I did not read his book, which is part <laughs> of the reason I don't go as in-depth about it later. Um, but I know his official profile wasn't, like, officially released, like the one that he gave to courts, and so I was having trouble finding it, so I'm really glad that you put that in there. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Yeah, he, um, because, like, profile, like, it was so new in the profiling like era they weren't really brought in as profilers kind of like mm -hmm. it was just an extra thing and no one really held any weight in it but yeah so that was their profile that's the man they're looking for all of the police officers are like no way that's not gonna happen but they're like just you wait and so the first known victim of 1981 was 14 year old luby geeter who had disappeared on january 3rd and was found on february 5th he had been strangled and his genitals, lower pelvic area, and both feet were missing. Oh. Super not okay, but also very different from all very the other different. ones. So I don't think yeah. he was killed by the same person who was strangling these kids. Mm-hmm. Even though he was also strangled. And then 15-year-old Terry Pugh is found along Sigmund Road in Rockdale County. And he had gone missing in January and lived in the same apartment building as Edward Smith, who was killed in 1979. And I don't know if they lived there at the same time or if he had moved in there after Edward was killed. I'm not sure how that works. Right. And then 12-year-old Patrick Balthazar was found off Buford Highway in DeKalb County in February. Both he and Terry were strangled. I believe they were found together or just around the same time. But on Patrick's body, they found hair and fibers that matched hair and fibers found on five other victims. And so these forensic findings were announced in the news. So John Douglas expected that the killer would begin dumping the bodies in the river to get rid of the evidence linking the kills. And so investigators had found the body of Patrick Rogers on the Cobb County side of the Chattahoochee River back in December, but he was a school dropout who was known to the law, so they didn't think that he fit the victim profile, so that's why they're not considering him using the river as a dumping ground. Um, just to kind of go back to that. That was such a weird way for me to put that in there. <laughs> that took me until I finished reading it to understand what I was trying to say. And then between February and early May, more bodies were being found, and among them were 13-year-old Curtis Walker in the South River and 13-year-old Timmy Hill and 21-year-old Eddie Duncan in the Chattahoochee. They, Timmy and Eddie were found one day apart. And all three of these bodies had been stripped of their clothing, so no extra hair or fibers were found on them. And then finally, Williams enters the story on May 22nd. At 2.30 in the morning, Bob Campbell, who is a police academy recruit, brought in to help with the search. He was finishing his surveillance shift underneath the Jackson Parkway Bridge on the Chattahoochee when he saw a car stop halfway across the bridge and then heard a splash. So a stakeout car then followed and pulled this car over, and driving the 1970. Chevy station wagon was 23-year-old Wayne Bertram Williams. They questioned him and searched his car, but they ended up letting him go because they couldn't really prove that he did anything. Did they not search the river if they heard a splash? Well, I don't know because they couldn't really, like, 
prove that he dumped a body, I guess. Like, I don't, and I don't know how fast it's moving either. That's fair. Cause I feel like the first instinct, especially if you're like with a partner, one person goes to detain them or go to detain the guy first and then maybe peer over, take a look at the water to see, oh, is there a body floating? Yeah. What's in there? What's in there? I agree. Or at least send a search team out after. Hmm. yeah right like let's maybe like drag the river but i guess yeah that's a lot of manpower for someone who might have just thrown like yeah a, like an like apple a bag of garbage i guess like i feel like yeah. it's the 70s it wouldn't have been he wouldn't have been the only guy like just dumping his trash in the river to get rid of it yeah exactly well like i feel like if i had heard the splash that a body made i would classify it as a very large splash not yeah. just a splash because to me that's just like a little you throw an apple into the river like just a little but yeah i don't know so two days later the body of 27 year old nathaniel um his last name is either carter or cater it varied on the source (laughs) and he was found downstream and not far from where 21 year old jimmy ray Payne was found a month earlier and so mm. even though they had found Nathaniel Carter, like, not far from where they had heard Williams throw something over the bridge, they didn't have enough evidence to arrest him. So they put him under bumper lock surveillance, which just basically means that they followed him so closely that their bumpers touched, uh, which I don't know why mm. I find that funny, but I, just, <laughs> I yeah, I think that's funny. Um, so Williams became aware of his police tale. So he took them on a wild goose chase around the city and he was observed burning photographs in his backyard and washing out his car. And he also fit their profile like pretty perfectly. So he was a police buff who owned a German shepherd, had been arrested for impersonating a police officer, had a police type vehicle and used police scanners to get to crime scenes to take pictures. So on that sense, yeah, but he didn't insinuate himself into the like investigation in any way, mm-hmm. and he's younger than their profile expects. Mm-hmm. But okay. he is single. Right. And so the FBI asked him to come to the office, where they apparently interviewed him poorly, and Douglas knew that they would never get a confession out of him because of it. And Williams took a polygraph test, and it came back inconclusive, which is not a shocker. And they found a book on how to beat a lie detector test in his house once they got a warrant to search it. That is just so non-suspicious. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, he's just oh, a regular wow. guy. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just light reading material. Exactly. And so this all happened around May 25th-ish. And so they obtained the warrant to search his house, which he lived in with his parents, on June 3rd. They found hair and fibers linking him to 12 of the murders in his car, despite the fact that he washed it out, in his room and in his house. Oh, and wow. Yeah. That so, feels like a lot of evidence. And was it, um, was it actual hair evidence? Like it was a human hair? Or was this, um, I've seen like Forensic Files episodes where the hair analysis is actually like a fiber from the carpet that they've called a hair. Um, but everyone has that carpet you know what I mean (laughs) yeah so I think majority was like they took fibers from like his bed his carpet like the carpet in his car and -hmm. some of the victims were found with dog hair on it that matched his German shepherd okay interesting yeah so I don't know if that's what they mean by hair or not and I'm sure there would have been some hair but not from the root like so you can't exactly get DNA but yeah, totally fair. I don't actually know. John Douglas didn't go into any detail on the evidence, really. <laughs> so I was like, okay, cool. And they were able to link some of the victims to Williams before they died. So they actually found fibers from clothes that they had worn previously in his house. Oh. oh. Which is crazy. Oh, also, I really want to know which 12 of the murders he was linked to. Yeah. No one tells you. What? I cannot like is the case still open is that why they can't I don't know because like the names of all the victims have been released more or less Mm -hmm. and so I don't understand why they haven't been like he was linked to these 12 kids 
Oh, yeah. Hmm. Um, so on June 21st, Williams was arrested for the murder of Nathaniel Carter, and his trial began in 1982, six, or after six days of jury selection. And majority of the jury was women. So there was nine women and three men, and the jury was also predominantly black. I don't know the um, how it was divided. That's really interesting that the jury was mostly women. I think that goes yeah. well for the children. I think they're going to be more empathetic for yeah. them. But I just, that's, I am so used to seeing like a majority men jury. I just yeah. think that's really interesting for 1982. <laughs> well, and I'm glad that there was also like, it was predominantly black as well. So that. Well, it was accurately represented for the exactly. for the jurisdiction that it was in. I agree. I think that's yeah. great because yeah. it's. I think that's in cases we talk about that are like from the nineties and like or from the nineteen hundreds. Like that is not common. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a proper like jury of your peers. Although he was linked to twelve murders, he was only being tried for two, which are Nathaniel mm-hmm. Carter and Jimmy Ray Payne. I don't know why he wasn't tried for the other ten murders he was linked to. Which seems like such an oversight on the, like, court's part, but whatever. Maybe they, like, went into it with the mentality of, if we catch this guy, we have enough evidence for these two cases, so we have the strongest cases against him, and if he's convicted, he'll be put away for long enough that, like, we don't need to include yeah. the other. Just kind or maybe, of, like, like they can use them time and money. Yeah, or use them as additional cases in the future to try? I guess. I yeah, because I guess if you, like, try him for all 12 and they find him not guilty, you can't bring him back to retry him for all 12. Yeah. But they did. Um, Where do I have it? They, The Georgia criminal procedure allowed the prosecution to bring in other linked cases so they were allowed to use the fact that he was linked to 10 other deaths um, kind of against him, which is very interesting because that doesn't happen all the time. And while he was on trial, Williams was mild-mannered, controlled, well-spoken, and friendly. He also looked, or he, quote, looked more like the Pillsbury Doughboy than a serial killer of children, end quote. Oh my gosh. <laughs> which works well for him. I'm sure and the Pillsbury Doughboy would absolutely love to be compared to a serial killer. Like, that does <laughs> yeah, great for their exactly. cookie brand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so he would also give statements to the press saying that he was innocent and his arrest was based solely on race and he was being um, un- like unjustly tried or whatever. And so the defense had brought in a forensic psychologist named Michael Brad Bayless to testify that Williams didn't fit the murder or didn't fit the profile and was incapable of the murders and so bayless had three interviews with williams and ended up not testifying he just kind of left and didn't come back and he told the atlanta journal and the atlanta constitution newspapers that williams quote wanted me to do one of two things and that was to change my report and not say certain things or not testify end quote hmm so by him not testifying kind of makes it look like he was guilty. Mm-hmm. And so there was about 700 pieces of hair and fiber evidence in this trial. And Holy the forensic shit. investigators who were called to testify were able to match fibers from all 12 victims to Williams, Violet, and Green bedspread, connected most to his carpet in his room, half to the carpet in the living room, half to his vehicle, and all but one was connected to his dog, which is... Oh, but, uh, uh, okay, if they're connected to his dog, do they know it's specifically that German Shepherd or that it's just a German Shepherd breed and that they're making the assumption then that it's his dog? I don't know. I'm going to go with the latter on that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I feel like they're kind of like, well, because they like linked all 12 of these victims to his like specific bedspread Mm -hmm. you can kind of make the assumption that the german shepherd would be his german shepherd and like the probability of someone having that exact same bedspread that same carpet in their house their car and that dog is pretty slim Mm -hmm. okay but 
Yeah, I don't know. And unfortunately, their presentation was so full of complex information that it didn't captivate the jury. Mm. They just kind of sat there and just in one ear out the other. And so the defense had brought in a very handsome man who simplified a bunch of stuff to rebuke their testimony, which stuck more with the jury, which is unfortunate for prosecution. (laughs) (laughs) And so at some point, Williams decided to take the stand, Mm. which is a huge mistake. Um, If you're ever on trial, don't take the stand. It doesn't help you. Even if you're innocent, the prosecution has such a way of like tangling your words and pulling words from you that you don't even say. It's insane. It very, very rarely helps. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, yeah, you can tell your story, but then cross-examination is probably just going to destroy it. They're just going (laughs) to confuse you and make you sound guilty, even if you're totally innocent. Just like, don't testify. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone in that room is smarter than you are. So just don't go on the stand. Yeah. And according to Douglas, when the defense was questioning him, his attorney, Al Binder, kept making the same point. Quote, look at him. Does he look like a serial killer? Look at him. Get up, Wayne. Look how soft his hands are. Do you think he would have the strength to kill someone, to strangle someone with these hands? End quote. That's quite a defense. That makes me laugh so hard because, like, it is winter. I have very dry, rough hands. Does that make me a killer? I don't have soft hands. Right? It's the skin of a killer, Bella. (laughs) Nice. Um, Yeah, I just, I feel like that's also something that you can't say to a jury as a lawyer. Yeah, it's just, you're just basing it off of like visual looks you can't yeah you can't do that so either way as a result of that williams was believed to be the innocent victim of a racially biased system that needed a suspect for these gruesome murders so they chose him i don't know i'm kind of torn on this because i always thought despite having read mindhunter and seeing the tv show and i know it's fictionalized and sensationalized the show but i didn't realize that there was evidence that like strongly could point towards Williams. Like, I always thought mm-hmm. it was just, there was no evidence to point towards him. He upheld his innocence, and it was a unjust system. Which it, I mm-hmm. still think it is, but... Oh, yeah. I don't know. I think there's fair evidence to consider him a suspect, and yeah. not... I don't think he's 100% innocent because there were a lot of kids that disappeared and were killed in a lot of different yeah. manners. And well, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. There's there's 29 kids that are included mm-hmm. under the umbrella of the Atlanta child murderer. OK, yeah. And there 12 of them were linked to Williams. So I feel wow. like he killed the 12, but mm-hmm. he was not responsible for the remaining ones. Mm-hmm. Or had part in the 12, at least. Yeah. Because if there's yeah, two people that were seen all in a mm-hmm. lot of eyewitness testimonies, maybe if he is the innocent, if he is innocent, he's not the one physically killing these kids, but maybe yeah. in on the plot. Well, and like, because the witness who saw Latonya Wilson, like, if she's not included in the Atlanta child murders anymore because mm-hmm. of the difference in it, then those mm-hmm. two witnesses are, are like that witness is... Oh, like those two people. So if I had known which kids were included in the 12, then I could look more into the witness statements and be like, this kid was seen with two people. Therefore, the chance of two murderers is a little bit higher, but Mm -hmm. I have no idea. (laughs) And so for cross-examination, Douglas worked with the... um, District Attorney, the ADA, Jack Mallard, on how to get him to crack. So I'm just going to read this verbatim because it is so beautifully written. Quote, at the right time, he, Mallard, goes in close, puts his hand on William's arm, and in a low, methodical South Georgia drawl says, what was it like, Wayne? What was it like when you wrapped your fingers around the victim's throat? Did you panic? Did you panic? And in a weak voice of his own, William says, no. (sighs) Then he catches himself. He flies into a rage. For the first time, the jury had seen the other side of Wayne Williams, end quote. 
Ooh. That's so fascinating, but it also right. feels a little manipulative. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. A little coerced. Just a little yeah. bit. Like, oh, how much can we consider that, like, coercion? Because, ooh, I don't know. It's because he, he very well could have been saying, like, no to himself to the fact that, like, no, he didn't do it. So, no, like, stop talking. No, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Like, he could have been saying no to, no, I didn't panic when I did it. Or it could be saying no, like, no, how could you be asking me these things? Like, exactly. Yeah. So it would be something to see that interaction. Because I feel like we're missing a lot of body language with it. Yeah. And and the rage that he flew into after, like, Mm -hmm. what was that? Was it just him raising his voice? Was it him, like, standing up on the stand and, like, freaking out? Like, what did that entail? Yeah, I'd be yeah, curious just, yeah. So I feel like there's more information to it. But nonetheless, on February 27th, 1982, the jury found him guilty for both murders after 11 hours of deliberation. And Williams was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences. Wow. And at the end of the chapter on the Atlanta child murders in the Mindhunter book, uh, Douglas says something very interesting that I'm going to read to you guys. And then we're going to talk about it because... <laughs> So, quote, despite what his supporters maintain, I believe the forensic and behavioral evidence points conclusively to Wayne Williams as the killer of 11 young men in Atlanta. Despite what his detractors and accusers maintain, I believe there is no strong evidence linking him to all or even most of the deaths and disappearances of children in that city between 1979 and 1981. Despite what some people would like to believe, young black and white children continue to die mysteriously in Atlanta and other cities. We have an idea who did some of the others. It isn't a single offender, and the truth isn't pleasant. So far, though, there's been neither the evidence nor the public will to seek indictment. End quote. So that is... I mean, I'm glad he admits that he Mm -hmm. doesn't believe he's like yes i was i helped in convicting him but we need to keep looking he wasn't the only one also um i had part of that quote to say in like my last slide so (laughs) (laughs) no i'm gonna skip that (laughs) that's funny yeah like the we have an idea who did some of the others is like are they acting on it what are they doing like let's pursue that yeah and the fact that he states the killer of 11 young men, but then also saying... But up no until strong- then, he had said 12. Yeah, that's what I'm confused about. I'm like, okay, who was the 12th that was, like, discarded or excluded from that number? Exactly. Yeah, I wonder if new evidence came out that, like, he can't say because, like you said, technically, like, they've reopened this. There's DNA and stuff to be looked at. Like, I'm curious if new evidence has come out that has made him second guess, like, one of his well, beliefs. This book was written in 1995. Oh. So the case was closed at that point, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. It just, I had read a different book called Haunting Adeline. And in it, the uh, male main character is hunting down this underground organization of human traffickers and sex traffickers. And so there's a whole bunch of like huge, this is so conspiracy theory. (laughs) <laughs> um, there's like you like government officials within this like organization who are like kidnapping and selling children. This is completely so then, fictionalized too, right? Just to this put it book, out there. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't fully believe that this organization doesn't exist. Okay. Okay. Because it's just a little too true. <laughs> um Okay. Anyway, continue though. <laughs> but the book is fiction. Um, and so then when he's like, we have an idea who did some of the other so far, it isn't a single offender and the truth isn't pleasant, makes me think that there's some sort of organization Inside, yeah. that's People kidnapping know more these than children. They're on. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I find it interesting too that there's no strong evidence linking him to all or even most of the deaths of children in the city between the Atlanta child murder period. Mm-hmm. So... Are those 11 young men in Atlanta, do they fall outside of the however many were attributed to the Atlanta child murders? And is he completely separate or is there some overlap? 
I think there's overlap. I think the it's like the 11 of the 29 are mm. linked to him. But the remaining okay. 18 aren't linked to him at all. Okay. Okay. That would that's my assumption. So then when he says um there's no strong evidence linking him to all or even most of the deaths and disappearances of the children in that city, that's the 18 that he's not actually right. linked to. Right. Just like that's, the yeah. wording of it makes it seem that he has a very little part to play in oh, definitely. the Atlanta child murders. Well, he's linked to less than half of the kids who died. So yeah. there's something else going on. Wild. When he was arrested, the, they say the murders stop, but kids mm. continue to go missing, go missing. and yeah. get found dead. Like, yeah. Any information about children being found after that continue to go missing because i f like with the, the atlanta child murders a lot of them were found within days months and like yeah some years but a lot mm -hmm. found the next day yeah so then i'm wondering if that's why they were able to give it a time frame because mm. if mm -hmm. in 1992 or 1982 kids would go missing and they wouldn't be found the next day the next day they're not yeah they fall um, outside of that yeah but the only kid who hasn't been found is darren glass of the in the atlanta child murders time yeah. span hmm. and everyone else has been found dead Ooh, interesting and well, yeah of the of the 29 that are considered part of the yeah yeah but just, yeah, it's so, for such a huge case, not mm -hmm. a lot is known on it. And there are still so many questions. Yeah. And with the research that you did, did you find much about the reopening of the case? And if anything's been brought to light, new evidence, well, new testing, any of that kind of thing? Yeah. Apparently, they submitted a bunch of stuff for DNA testing. And then a year later, the parents were like, can we get the results to that? And that's all that's been known. They're so I don't know if the backlog. results have been shared with the parents or mm. it ha they haven't been shared with the public. And it's been, I think, two years. Wow. Because it opened Cause, yeah. in 2019. And then I think in 2020 or 2022, mm -hmm. that's when they submitted a bunch of stuff for DNA testing. And then in 2023, parents were like, hey, can we see that? Wow. I think it's so interesting because like I understand that and this is obviously all a bit of like a tangent now but um I understand like the parents want answers they want to be kept in the loop in this investigation but unfortunately like most open investigations they're not going to keep the family in the loop because of like I mean there's so much information that they need to keep private so it doesn't get out to the public you know what i mean so they're not going to tell the parents because i mean obviously they're grieving so they don't want them mm -hmm. to release anything that could be detrimental to the case mm -hmm. and i feel so bad about it um i don't remember what i was watching lately but i was just, i was watching some true crime and the parents thought that the police weren't doing anything it had been like 10 years and they didn't hear anything and then out of the blue the police was like so we just arrested someone in your daughter's murder and oh. they didn't know because it was it was someone very close to the family. They didn't want to risk like oh, the family yeah. saying anything. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting. Like I feel really bad that the family's not kept in the loop, but at the same time, like I understand why. Yeah. Like yeah. the police still have to do their jobs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that's pretty much all I have for the Atlanta child murders. It's very interesting to discuss because it mm -hmm. is very conspiracy theory coded and a lot of people do still believe that the KKK was actually what happened and Williams is still like nope I didn't do it I didn't do it and mm -hmm. so he's up for parole I think in 2027 so hopefully that gets denied and yeah it's just wild but this case think... was like a hmm? sorry to interrupt it's you okay. can keep you talking. go ahead <laughs> I was just theorizing <laughs> no go ahead um going back to like the different people like i think th yeah kkk probably was involved when are they not involved in shitty mm -hmm. things like this um 
But then again, like you had mentioned, Rebecca, they made it pretty clear that they were involved in these things. So at what point are they actually involved? And then with the amount of different uh, patterns and MOs and whatever seen, it makes you wonder, well, how many people are actually at play in this? Because one, unless one person's doing all of this, which seems very, very highly unlikely, just given Mm -hmm. like our understanding and knowledge of human behavior and killing people. Um, you, you kind of wonder, well, how many then could be involved? Exactly. Because at at least two, Mm -hmm. at least could that go upwards of like five to 10? Who knows? Is it like one killer? Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe it's a different killer for the remaining 18. Exactly. And so it's like, are some of these drug related? Was that yeah. one kid killed by someone retaliating for him testifying against those other mm-hmm. three kids? Like, yeah, they you just, just don't know. They just monopolized on the fact that their an overseeing serial killer had been created. So mm-hmm. now maybe people are taking up the chance to target you, young black youth or black individuals in general because you said upwards of 29 22 was like the oldest um, something in the 20s or 27 is the oldest but like do they just kill a black individual and then hope that it's going to be classified as an atlanta child murder at this point That's- because of that terms out there and like yeah, yeah. i don't know there's just a lot of too. questions like you said yeah because like if you did want to kill someone like what better time than if there's an active serial killer an active serial killer you just choose a somewhat related victim in the sense of it being the 70s and 80s and just your color of skin is going to classify you as exactly a group categorize yeah i was gonna say the 70s was a great time for one-off murders because that Mm -hmm. was like prime time for serial killers (laughs) exactly yeah 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 so yeah i just don't know wayne thinks he's uh innocent I don't believe that he is. I did going into this and then I uh, read it more and I was like, nope, you Maybe you not. killed those 12. <laughs> I don't know about the rest, but you definitely did those 12. <laughs> yeah, you were at least guilty to some. Yeah, wow. you're not innocent okay. by any stretch. That yeah. was a lot of information. I, even despite knowing what I knew about those murders... I'm still shocked every time I hear it. Like, I feel like I learn something new or some new evidence comes to light that makes me makes me ponder a bit more. Mm -hmm. As kind of a segue now into Rebecca's part of this episode, this case was definitely a major turning point for the behavioral analysis unit at the FBI. So we will catch you in the next episode that is also posted today if you want to learn all about um, behavioral analysis. I highly recommend it. It's a wonderful, intriguing, thought-provoking topic that Rebecca will tell us more about. So we'll see you on the next episode. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just interested in forensics and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week.